The Start On Demand. On demand. What happened in Montreal on Saturday? The Blue Bombers had the game so well in hand, and then they just gave it away. We will speak to both Doug Brown and Bob Irving to get the post-mortem on the Bombers' collapse against the Alouettes. The Supreme Court of Canada making history this week, hearing cases outside of Ottawa, and they're doing it right here in Winnipeg this week. So we will speak to the Chief Justice of Canada in our studio. All that rain, bad news for farmers. We'll tell you why you should care. And have you ever heard of the show Fleabag? It was the big winner at the Emmys on Sunday night, but most of us don't even know what it is. I'm Brett McGarry, alongside Greg Mackling and Loren McNabb. We are Mackling, McGarry, and McNabb, and this is the Monday, September 23rd podcast for The Start. Mackling, McGarry, and McNabb, and uh, guys, I want to start by saying I had kind of a weird weekend in the sense that I didn't sleep in my bed on Friday or Saturday. It's too much information. Well, and I wish it was for some sort of exciting or glamorous reason, but it's only, and if you follow me on Instagram, you can see the, the boomerang I posted of this on my story. It's just because I fell asleep on my damn couch, sitting up on the chaise. Woke up at both God, nights. Both nights. I woke up at like seven thirty on uh, Saturday morning, and then I think seven thirty Sunday morning. And I just thought, well, <laughs> it's a good thing I bought a nice bed because it's not getting that. used. You yeah. need to fix that. I don't know if I've ever fallen asleep on my couch in the last ten years. What? Like not even for a nap. Really? Yeah. It's not that even when I'm sick, I have to go to my bed. I just don't like it. And it's always sitting up too. Like it's oh, never yeah. lying down. Just you know. Sitting up with my legs up on the chaise, my head just, I, I think Saturday morning I woke up with my head tilted to my right, and then Sunday I woke up with my chin sort of resting on my chest. You might as well be on an airplane. Yeah. <laughs> just go go to the airport around midnight, time to go to bed, just sit on an aircraft and fly to Vancouver and back. That's so really you, the equivalent of it, what you've done. Is your neck sore then? No, no, I think it's because I do. it happens so often so good at it. that I'm just used to it. Yeah, so. it's a positive. The positive spin is you're very good at sleeping on your couch, Gary. <laughs> well done. <laughs> so hopefully uh, I did actually make it to bed last night, so hopefully I can stay awake for you guys this morning. And uh, devastation in Montreal, Greg, I'm sure. I was curious to know, when I because when I saw what was happening, I was shouting. And you're more invested mm-hmm. than I am. Mm-hmm. What, what was the reaction at Casa del Mackling? I was silent. I was, it was stunned silence. Oh, my. I was text messaging with my buddy. And uh, after Justin Medlock missed the 53-yard field goal, he said to me, I don't have a good feeling about this. Mm-hmm. And I just gave him the ha, 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 ha. <laughs> 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 and I look back on it now and I... That's the point. Uh, the radar yeah. should have been on, and when Medlock missed, and by no means, by no means am I uh, suggesting Justin Medlock no. cost, the blue, cost the Blue Bombers the game, but when he missed the first convert in 104 straight attempts, mm. 
you knew something might be amiss at the Circle K, as they say in Bill and Ted's Great Adventure. I actually got in the car and was listening to the game with Bob, and it was, what, 37-17 at that point. And mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. I pulled into, a, a, had to do some shopping, pulled into the store and came back out and the, didn't have the radio on. And I was like, well, that's okay. They're going to win. And I walk in the house and my husband's with some friends and they're like, I think they're going to lose this game. And I was like, isn't it like a hundred to nothing? And <laughs> <laughs> sure enough, like five, it wasn't funny. It just was like, oh, I, thought, I just thought it was like this in... bizarre, you know, moment where you think, no, <laughs> that would never happen. And then it did. Yeah. I went to, to see my dad yesterday and my sister because uh, it was my birthday yesterday and my sister's birthday because she is 11 minutes my senior. And uh, my dad says, hey, the Bombers won again. Right. And I said, no. <laughs> right, what, what do you mean? So no? many people might have turned their TV off yeah, at a certain point. That's exactly what happened. Yeah. He didn't. Uh, he saw that the, the bombers were killing Montreal, and he turned the game off and went and did something else. And uh, he was stunned to find out that they lost. I mean, hey, it was and from a perspective of storytelling. And entertaining sports, Epic. like great comeback for Montreal. Just Montreal sucks that. that it's uh, that it was our side. Yeah, uh, yeah, our side. Montreal sort of owed us one of those back from I think it's July twenty seventh, twenty seventeen, when the Bombers came back with two touchdowns in the last minute or so, that onside kick, and then the incredible comeback against Montreal here in Winnipeg. So uh, sometimes uh, things in the universe do even out. But there was a play in the game that has a lot of people worked up. Mm. Uh, Jeff Hecht got an interception with about six minutes left. Looked to sort of seal the deal in, in a lot of uh, senses. Montreal was driving uh, to pull within. Uh, they were, the Bombers were up by 13 at that point. Bombers get an interception, and on the play, Adam Bighill is blocking Vernon Adams, the quarterback of Montreal. He rips off Adam Bighill's helmet and then proceeds to hit Bighill in the face with said helmet. And a lot of people are, are angry that Vernon Adams was even in the game to complete the comeback. So uh, it'll be interesting to see if we hear anything from the CFL on that today. Going to play a clip from a TV show here. See if you know what it is. You know that feeling when a guy you like sends you a text at 2 o'clock on a Tuesday night asking if he can come and find you? And then you open the door to him like you've always forgotten he's coming over. Oh! Hi. Hey. Oh my god, definitely not. That does nothing for you. What? These are my clothes, Boo. I've been wearing these all day. It's really not that bad. It's really oh, bad. I'm sorry. I Anybody know the name of that show? No clue. No. Flea Trap? Flea Bag is the name of the show. (laughs) And last night is probably the first night that a whole bunch of people heard of this show. It won Best Comedy at the Emmys. It won Best Actor, Best Female Actor, uh, Phoebe Waller-Bridge. It won Best Writing. What's the the premise behind the show? So Flea Bag, it's actually based on a one-person play that this this woman did, I guess, back in 2013. And uh, hang on a second. I had the synopsis here. Sorry, I didn't mean to. No, no, I had it it in the stack, and I just didn't have it at the top of the stack. So it's a show from BBC, uh, co-produced with Amazon, and she plays Fleabag, an angry, confused, sexually voracious young woman living in London, and uh, she talks to the camera. You heard her sort of talking at the beginning, so she looks at the camera like she's talking to you, and then she carries on. And it's apparently just outstanding stuff. 
But I hadn't heard of it until Jeff and I were going over the, the Jeff Braun and I were going over the Emmy nominations this week for the Couch Potatoes because I don't have Amazon video, mm-hmm. so I yeah. haven't seen it. So she breaks the fourth wall? She breaks they the call fourth it? wall, as they call it. That's right. So, Kelly, I think I heard you walk in and say, I didn't even know the Emmys were on. <laughs> I, I did not know they were on until I heard Drex uh, talking with Steve Stebbing on his show. Yeah. Oh, the Emmys were on. But, you know, that ship sailed for me a long time ago. Uh, I'm that generation that doesn't watch a lot of live streaming TV. I still prefer old-fashioned TV with the amount of time that I get to watch it. But on Sunday nights, I mean, there was a Jets game. There's Sunday night football. There's the NFL highlights to watch. You got other options. I have way more uh, in interest. Too. I'm more of a vein right now where I, di- I just don't, not that I not only don't know these shows exist, I don't wouldn't know how to go about watching them or what I'm supposed to sign up for. So or, I'm not the only. No, I, oh, thank I, God. Honestly, this makes me sound probably like just like I got my head in the sand. But I when they said Amazon Prime, I actually was like, or Amazon, whatever, however you find this show. I was like, oh, right. Amazon has TV, and then I'll, Brett, Brett will regularly bring up shows and say something like, you can catch that on, I don't know, Crave, or I don't even know, Netflix is that a thing? Or, yeah. Well, Netflix I got, but that, oh, like, I was like, how many things do I have to know about to find good TV? It's just, it's too much, so I'm just not doing it. Does this remind you of when The Sopranos started taking over the Emmy Awards, and a lot of people did not have HBO, could not watch uh, yep. The Sopranos, and I think that, that maybe that was the beginning of the end for that award show, because... People just kind of went, well, I like people to win that I actually know who they are. And I might have actually seen an episode or two of the program. Yeah, because uh, The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel is another comedy that won a couple of awards yesterday. And it has previously won in the best comedy category. That also is an Amazon show. and So Amazon is buying the Emmys is what you're saying. That's right. <laughs> They're uh, buying the They're Emmys. just getting shipped the Emmys straight direct. Yeah. To the winners. They using go, Amazon go Prime. Go up on the stage, yes. Yeah. Using Amazon Prime. Yeah, exactly. It, it is confusing, though, because now you've got... So you've got cable, regular cable, or, or premium cable. Like, for us, it's Crave, and that has the HBO package. And then we mentioned Netflix. You've got Amazon. Disney, Disney and Apple are getting ready yeah. to launch their streaming services NBC? in November. So, so and, well, what... Yeah, NBC, uh, CBS. you're going to call it? That's yeah. right. Yeah, why don't the Emmys just then be shown on Amazon Prime or Netflix or whatever, where... People are actually watching these shows. Maybe, maybe they get better ratings. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure their ratings are going to be poor because they also went with with no host this year, which was kind of a strange format. How did that go? It was kind of boring. I, I just award shows always bore me to mm. death, and uh, they're just yeah, every speech or almost every speech had some sort of political slant to it, ah, and that's uh, I just I get tired of of all of that. But so. so you're you watch this stuff partly because you're you like it, but also because of the couch potatoes. You like to be in the know for work, right? Yep. Okay, so Tristan and Jeff, you're our youngest people in the room in your twenties, right? Yeah. So do you watch all these shows? Like, did you know any nope. of them? I, I had no idea about any of these shows, and I'm terrible when it comes to watching TV. Like, I'm still on uh, like season three of Stranger Things. I haven't finished that yet. Right. The Walking Dead. I gave up on that like season <laughs> two. I'm just I'm terrible when it comes to TV. Amateur, eh, Brad? <laughs> yes. yes. Like you have no idea. Braun's always like, "Oh, hey, have you seen this movie or this TV show?" I'm like, "No, I haven't seen it." Okay, Tristan. Well, you know what's interesting? It was I was right there with Kelly because you, Kelly, you mentioned how you like old-fashioned television, yeah. And yet, I am of the generation where I haven't watched old-fashioned TV, if you will, since I was the age of thirteen, and I haven't had a television 
Uh, I don't have one in my condo, and I haven't had something like that since I can't even remember. So you use an iPad or whatever to watch. I, I use well, no, I use yeah Netflix or whatever it is, but I, I don't have like traditional TV that sort of thing. I don't, and yet I'm right there with you, Kelly. I have way better options for stuff to watch, except besides the Emmys. You know, in the era of YouTube and Netflix and whatever else it is, there's way more I'd rather watch than just a bunch of speeches for a bunch of shows that for the most part I don't really watch so I don't think it's just a matter of it's you not know, a generational thing no, that is what no not at all I think there's a lot of people out there who are just fed up with it I, I would say this though if Ricky Gervais hosted the award shows like he did with the Golden Globes that's the only time I actually made a point of trying to tune in for that because he was hilarious he, he was he was pretty good I found him a little he got a little too roasty a little too mean spirited yeah <laughs> that's yeah. his thing though isn't it that's to almost what you have to do to gain viewership though isn't it these days uh, I, to an extent Edgy? I think the, the second time he did it I think he he went a bit too far with many of the presenters like they came out and you could tell they were not having what he had to say uh, but yeah, that is his thing. He's crass and he's arrogant and he doesn't care about anything. I, I just like to watch those shows though because of the people. You see how they're what they're wearing or what who's dating who. Like it's just a gossip fest. But then when you don't know anybody, <laughs> then that's like, sort of irrelevant, right? right? Yeah. Look, I, I was like, oh, there's Seth MacFarlane, and now he's kissing a woman who just won an award, and I don't know who she is, <laughs> who is and I don't woman? know what show she's on, and Amazon what? Like I was just click. See you later. So uh-huh. did, when you see this show, that's now won all the big awards it beat veep this because this could have been a historic night for julia louis dreyfus she would have been i think the biggest emmy winner ever was it that's right i I think it would have been eight it would have been eight in a row for her yeah as a best actress in a comedy series or best actor in a comedy series i don't know i just uh the only redeeming thing kelly of watching the emmys last night would have been then you wouldn't have had to have watched that horrible jets game last night cuz i was at the game in those first two periods i left after two periods i never ever do that that oh, was a you missed terrible the best part. game yeah of course i did just a terrible sunday night all around for terrible all weekend for like. sports cups lose cups you know I'm, I'm just thinking you know, this is probably the worst day for jeff braun to be sick because he'd have way more insight into the emmys than i would and it's Bruce Springsteen's 70th birthday. Yeah. Happy birthday. Oh, he was, exactly. I was reading this up, by the way. Random fact. He has never had a number one hit on the pop charts. That is absolutely true. That was shocking Good to me. reading, Tristan. Anyway, sorry. This is way more interesting than the Emmys to me. But um, I, I Go, you, you stop now. Doug Brown's on the line. I, could only, I, I don't want to play any highlights because there are none. Doug, what the hell happened on Saturday? That is... Uh, very good question. If you had said both those football teams had gone into halftime and just completely swapped out uniforms, then it would have all made sense perfectly. But uh, I've never seen a game where two halves of a football contest were so uh, contrasted against one another. I've never seen such a great first half by the Winnipeg Blue Bombers. And then I've never seen... uh, uh, such an epic meltdown to that degree in the third and fourth quarters, especially the fourth quarter. I mean, 200, almost 250 yards of passing were surrendered in the fourth quarter alone. Obviously, you prorate that over a game. That's a thousand yards. That's that's how prolific that one quarter was for Montreal in finishing and mounting that comeback. Did they go into a prevent defense? Because uh, I've heard prevent defense is described as this. It does one thing for you. It prevents you from winning football games. You know, in my mind, what we were seeing up in the booth, Montreal was like, okay, let's just 
abandon the run and just attack. Let's just attack this football team vertically and uh, pay no attention to like they weren't they weren't even hinting, disguising or anything. They completely just gave up on the run and just said these guys can't handle our receivers. I think it was mainly just a a matchup scenario where they just had guys that had no problems uh, stretching the field vertically, uh, getting space, getting separation away from the defenders. Uh, getting wide open, um, there were busts in coverage. There were guys that got behind. There were guys that got dropped in coverage. It was just, it was incredible. It was one of the most agonizing and one of the worst losses I've ever viewed, observed, been a part of um, in this organization's history. It was uh, to see something look that good in a game, and then uh, you know find every single way and it wasn't just the defense either i mean the offense couldn't get anything going and there were so many opportunities uh, that jeff heck uh, interception late in the game you're like finally you know we still were convinced up in the booth wow they're they're thank goodness that happened we're like they're going to be able to pull this out as they should and uh it, it just was never enough and it's funny i just saw on social media today kahari jones in the locker room after the game he literally was so overcome with emotion. Joe Mack was in there handing him a game ball. I mean, how painful can this get? It's, uh, that's something you're not going to forget in a very long time. Is there room for some perspective here, Doug, in the sense that, okay, it's an agonizing, terrible loss, but it's, you know, at this point in the season, there's still so much ball left to be played? Yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, they're a 9-4 and four football club. Uh, they're now tied in the West at, at nine and four. And then there's another team that's at eight and four right now. So, you know, they still control their own destiny in terms of the games remaining and, and they can choose by how they play in those games, where they're going to win. But I just don't see as good as this football team is at saying, Hey, win, lose or draw. That's one game. We have to move on. We have to forget about that. And uh, it's all about just this week and this game. I just don't know how that doesn't linger uh, with your football club, with the psyche of the players on that team. Um, I don't know how you can recover over the course of, of, of six days, go back on the football field. I mean, they're undefeated at home. So thank goodness for a change of environment and venue. Uh, they're, they're very good here, but I just don't see how you can recover from a loss of that magnitude so quickly. Mackling, McGarry, and McNabb. Thank you very much for joining us this morning on 680 CJOB. Loren McNabb, we want to revisit the rain. Yeah, we were talking with Environment Canada at 635 about how much rain had fallen over the weekend. In some parts, I think it was six inches over Friday and Saturday with more coming this week. And I was saying it's been hard just to walk across our lawn. It's so wet. You can only imagine what it's like in some fields. And we want to get an update on what's been going on for farmers out there. Bill Campbell is with the Keystone Agriculture Producers and joins us now. Good morning, Bill. Uh, good day. So let's talk about the rain that's fallen. Uh, when it comes to just getting into their fields, I know a lot of farmers these days have new kinds of tractors that have the tracks on them, but is it even possible in some parts to fathom continuing with harvest, given how wet it is? Well, there's going to be significant challenges with the rainfall that has happened in parts of Manitoba. We're hearing uh, uh, conversations of two to eight inches of rain in certain spots, and uh, it seems like an area north and south of Brandon have been 
particularly hard hit. Um, We've seen some areas get more rain on Friday and less on Saturday, and we're seeing some that got more on Saturday. Our particular farm got three and six tenths, and traveling on the farm is going to be a problem now. Uh, We've seen uh, bales in water. Uh, I've seen swaths in water. I've seen standing crop in water. Uh, So getting across these fields is going to be a challenge. And now we see on Friday night in the forecast a a low near zero. That that can't be a very good combination for for you folks, Bill. No, uh, the only thing is there is some old farmer philosophy that to get a change in the weather is going to take a frost, but uh, and a significant frost. But it's it, it, it's not very comforting to see those temperatures decline to that amount. And uh, I seen a forecast uh, from Western Canada with that um, yep. word uh, yep. starts with S, and I'm not <laughs> going to say it. So, <laughs> so. So we have some huge problems. This is very, very, very bad. Um, I uh, I would think that we, you know, we got 10 million acres in this province of annual crop production, and Manitoba Agriculture said that we're less than 50% done. And if we take a conservative estimate of 400 bucks an acre, we're looking at approximately two billion dollars that is sitting out on the on the crop. Now, some of that we'll be able to get, and, you know, it, it will come with some time, but we're fi- going to face some challenges. But I would suggest to you that any heart, uh, swath cereal crop is in jeopardy of not not being able to be salvaged. I looked at some last night, uh, and it's ugly. It's, it's just there's no other nice way of putting it that uh, we are going to see some production losses. These challenges are also going to face other commodities. Uh, You know, the potato harvest is is happening, so how are they going to get things done? The dry bean harvest, they need to travel on the fields. Corn silage needs to come off, and if you can't travel in the field, how are we going to get this done? So we need some favorable weather, and I'm saying that I'm not sure that the forecast is really in in our court right now, so... Not just travel in the field, Bill. You know, if the crop sits in water for too long, what can happen in terms of, can you, is it disease or other that can be a big impact? Well, it, it's not disease, but it will start to sprout. It, it is facing quality issues. And like I said, my, my oats are sprouted now, and I don't know what I will do with them. They're absolutely soaking wet. It'll take a week of nice dry weather before there's even the conversation of baling or combining them. Uh, and if we don't get that, I don't know what I do with them. I, I, I honestly don't. I've, I've farmed for uh, pretty near 50 years, and I've never encountered this type of scenario uh, where we're at right now. So, um, it's, you know, I've played with mud. I, I've dealt with different things, but I don't think I've ever had uh, a sprouted crop uh, in a swath like that. So standing crops, you know, we're going to look at some uh, degrading of, of the grates and, you know, quality and may go to feed and different things like that. If it's standing, you know, might might be all right. But the, anything that's swathed, you know, it, it's not good. So Bill Campbell with the Keystone Agricultural Producers joining us live on 680 CJOB. Bill, thank you very much for the time and uh, Godspeed out well, there, sir. 
Well, I guess all I can say in Monday in Manitoba, there's no joy in Mudville today. So <laughs> between the bombers and the and the weather, she's been a bad weekend. So, <laughs> so yeah. Bob Irving, voice of the Blue Bombers, joins us now. Bob, I asked a very simple question of Doug Brown when we brought him on at 7.15. I said, what the hell happened Saturday, Bob? Is it <laughs> as simple as asking you that very same question? Well, I'm still trying to get my head around how the Bombers lost that game in Montreal on Saturday. I think Mike O'Shea had the proper words to describe it. Greg, he called it a monumental collapse. And another word he used was sickening. Um, the Bombers just uh, they just self-destructed. You know, they were up 37-17 going into the fourth quarter. I think there's some numbers that are just very alarming. They gave up over 300 yards of offense in the fourth quarter. In the fourth quarter. I mean, that's stunning. It was a, a perfect storm of what could go wrong, did go wrong, and what mistakes they could make, they'd make. And... Uh, as it, you know, with six minutes to go, the Bombers are still up by 13. And then Jeff Heck makes an interception uh, deep in Winnipeg territory. And, and both Doug Brown and I felt at that time, well, that's a game clincher. Joe Mack, the acting GM of the Owls, was sitting in a booth next to us. And after that play, he left the booth and started walking down through the crowd, almost in resignation. And yet uh, Montreal went out and scored two more touchdowns, including... A uh, drive of over 100 yards in the last minute and a bit, and that included a 60-yard pass to Quan Bray, which is totally inexcusable in a situation like that. So, I don't know. It was uh, it was a stunningly bad uh, performance after you know you had a game one, and what the Bombers have to do now to get that taste out of their mouth is pick themselves up, dust themselves off, go out and beat Hamilton on Friday night. And then all is well with the world again. But for now, the taste is bad in their mouths and the mouths of their fans. Three of the four losses that the Bombers have uh, have surrendered this year, Bob, have been on game last play of the game clinching drives or, or situations. Yeah, that's right. And that's... Uh, you know, that's not a, a good sign. We think this is a very good defense. We talk about it all the time. The numbers suggest that, that they're one of the better defenses in the Canadian Football League. But as you say, Greg, at crunch time, way too often now, uh, they just haven't been able to get it done. And is this a, you know, a sign that there are issues there that, you know, that we didn't know about and will have to be dealt with or are going to eventually cost them in the end? Or again, can they pull themselves up by the bootstraps and and get away from doing that. I mean, we can't blame the offense the other night. I know they kind of shut down in the fourth quarter, too, but they scored 30 points. Uh, the defense gave up 37 points, including three touchdowns in the fourth quarter. So there's a lot of guys looking themselves in the mirror over there, including the coaches, and uh, trying to get it straightened out for Friday because that Hamilton team that comes in here, boy, they're 10-3, and three and they're mighty good. In part of this frustration post-game has been the – hit that uh, Adam Bighill took and the altercation with Vernon Adams that he grabbed his helmet or face mask and ripped his helmet off and apparently looks like he swung at him. What do you make of that and what can happen now with possible suspension or other? Yeah, I don't think they'll suspend him, Lauren. That would be extreme for the league to do. But I've watched that video over and over and over again. And there was an official five yards away from the play who didn't call a penalty, which it just makes you shake your head. 
uh, you know, Big Hill and Adams were kind of locked up together and they fell to the turf and Adams ripped Big Hill's helmet off and then swung it at him. Uh, you, you just don't see that. I don't even remember seeing that uh, over the years that I've watched the Canadian Football League. And for him not to even get a penalty, he'll be fined. I'm certain he'll be fined by the league, but I, I doubt he'll be suspended. Let me just then throw some perspective at this, too. You know, I know the fans are enraged, our phone calls on the post game show, and, and it's not just losing, it's the way they lost. But they're still 9 and 4, they're still tied for first place. And I was talking on our post-game show the other night. I remember last year, the, and Greg, you might remember this because you follow it closely. They were 5-7 and seven at one point last year. Five wins, seven losses. And really, a lot of people had thrown up their hands and said, you know, this the gloom and doom, the season's over. Well, they won five games in a row. So, you know, things can change so dramatically and go from horrible to good again. I would just say to everybody, keep that in mind as you try to get over the disappointment that Saturday's game delivered to you. Could this be just a situation where the Bombers, maybe they had scored so many points, they were so far ahead that they just kind of relaxed a little bit and said, ah, they can't, they can't possibly come back and beat us now? Yeah, I think there's some of that. Uh, Brad, I don't think there's any question about that. We've seen it before. Where I mean, they were so dominant in the first half. They were up 34 to 10, and Doug and I were just looking at each other like, man, this is men against boys. This is almost unfair. And then the second, uh, the interception that Strebler threw late in the second quarter that led to a Montreal touchdown, I think gave Montreal some hope when they clearly had none. And it was the same in the Toronto game where they were up 20 to nothing and then gave up a touchdown late in the second quarter. And all of a sudden, the team that you've got down gets a little bit of life and a little bit of hope, and they come out in the second half believing they have a chance now, when I'm sure they'd have gone to the dressing room, uh, but for those scores, thinking they had no chance. So, yeah, I think there's some of that, though. You, you get way ahead, and it's just hard to keep your focus and intensity. Well, uh, must listen to radio tonight on 680 <laughs> CJOB, 7 till 8. The coaches show, Bob Irving and the coach, Mike O'Shea, will uh, come into studio and bravely take your phone calls, your comments, your <laughs> observations, and uh, probably have a few things to say on uh, not only what happened on Saturday evening in Montreal, but how you get ready for Hamilton Friday night, a big game for the Bombers. Thanks for this, Bob. Okay, you guys. Bob Irving joining us live on 680 CJOB. And now we have tickets to give away for Friday's game against Hamilton. The Tiger Cats coming to town. I'm not really sure what that accent was that I was just doing. Yeah, they kind of uh, say it like that sometimes down do east. Okay. Sure. That's my favorite place to watch a football game outside of Winnipeg. Iverwin? Yeah, I used to love oh, it. Tim well, it's, a new, it's a new field now, now but they, um, stadiums in that area where there's not enough parking, so people sell their lawn spaces, right. like 10 bucks to park on their lawn. And so really? it be part of the fun. You're like, ooh, this is a nice like random yard to pull into. <laughs> and there's some guy standing out there like, yep, yep, squeezing three cars onto the front lawn or into someone else's driveway. So it's kind of cool. That is neat. Do you have perhaps a Hamilton-themed question off the top of your head? I wasn't going to go Hamilton-themed. I was going to go Montreal. I mentioned earlier this morning that maybe Montreal owed the Blue Bombers this uh, comeback victory. What was the date of Winnipeg's comeback victory against Montreal in 2017? I need the the month and 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 the day of the month. McGarry and McNabb. I am excited about this week. We love 
talking to writers on this show. They're always among the most fascinating people we get to meet, and as luck would have it, this week, Thin Air is back. It's the Winnipeg International Writers Festival, so we are going to speak to a number of writers this week, including one right now, a man who just made the Giller Longlist with his novel Greenwood, described as a multi-generational novel stretching into the near future after an environmental collapse. Michael Christie is his name, and he joins us now this morning from British Columbia. Michael, good morning to you, sir. Good morning. Thanks for having me. So you made the Giller long list. When you, when did you find that out? How long ago was that? Ah, uh, that was about a week and a half ago now. Uh, yeah, this is my third time on the Giller long list, though. So I'm not making any promises to my family and friends. <laughs> what time do you get that phone call, uh, Michael? You're living uh, on the west coast. You see the Emmy nominations at all hours of the morning. It seems if you're in Los Angeles or that part of the world. What what time did you you get notification? Uh, it was 7 in the morning, uh, and I got a text from my agent, uh, and then I heard my wife kind of yell from the, from the computer room, so I knew something was happening. I love to ask uh, authors, writers, where you come up with the ideas for your novels. So for this book, Greenwood, is it things that are happening in society around us that influenced it, or is it something that you've personally been interested in? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this story tells... You know, it's the story of one family traced over 130 years. So there are a lot of characters, a lot of stories. Um, but the the kind of the, the motivation was, you know, climate change. Uh, my anxieties around that. You know, the way that we're dealing with it, the way we're failing to deal with it. Uh, so that was really, yeah, that was you know the impetus for the story. You use the word anxiety. So what do you mm-hmm. mean by that? What's going through your head when when you're hearing the conversations about this? Well, I mean, I've got two little kids, so, you know, you see the news and you see the way things are going and our failure to deal with this problem and the amount of carbon we're pumping into the atmosphere and the rising temperatures. And so it's, you know, it's worrisome. And I think there's a general increase lately in this kind of anxiety. I see it with my kids. We watch a nature program and they ask me whether the polar bears are going to be around by the time, you know, they're 30. And I, I don't know. How much, how much research do you do into something like this, Michael, yep. let alone your lived experience? Or how deep are you getting into this? Does it, does it get to the point where it overwhelms you and, and it almost becomes difficult to function? That's a very good way to describe it. Yeah, it's, uh, this, particularly for this book, because it spans so much time and I had to do a ton of research to you know, generate the facts and the details and, you know, to, to give the history life. And so, yeah, there is a certain point where you're, you know, you're, it just feels like all the, everything's just spread out on the ground and you don't know what to do with it and you don't know where the story's going. Uh, but at that point, you know, you just kind of got to put your head down and get writing. Now, I understand that you live in a, a timber frame house that you <laughs> built yourself. Does that have anything to do with these anxieties that you talk about? Oh, no, I'm not, I'm not a recluse by any means. It's, uh, I live on Galliano Island, so it's a small, it's a small community. But I, did, I do live in a house that I built myself out of the wood that we brought down here on the property. And so uh, it's, you know, it's just a wonderful you know, place to live. I love the island. I love being in the trees. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's pretty much ideal for me in that it's really low on distractions and I can get a lot of work done and it's great for the family too. 
I want to know something. How do you go from being a professional skateboarder to a master in fine arts? <laughs> well, uh, it, it's been a you know a bumpy path, but it's been a great one. And so I've always been a pretty you know dedicated and focused person. And after my skateboard career kind of was winding down, I took all that uh, obsession and sort of transferred it over to writing, and it's it's worked out so far. So you're coming to Winnipeg. You've got a couple of uh, events that you're participating in, one on uh, September 27th and then one on September 28th. So the one on the 28th, it's called Writing Craft, Convincing with Detail. So obviously mm-hmm. you, you, we don't need you to or want you to give us the full seminar right now because you want <laughs> people to come see you. But can, when you talk about convincing with detail, uh, how do you get those details right so that you do convince people what you're, what they're reading is, at least in that moment, real in their mind? Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, part of my seminar is going to be about the relationship between storytelling and lying. And uh, in the sense that the best lies are the ones that are the most detailed. If, you know, if someone is giving an alibi and they're very vague and they don't have specifics, you know, instantly, uh, you know, we, we believe them a lot less than we would if they are giving detail and specifics. So that's, that's a big part of writing fiction is being specific and concrete and confident with your details. So that's what I'm going to be speaking about. I was talking to somebody the other day about the whole idea, the premise for Jurassic Park. It's, you know, it's rooted in science to a certain extent, uh, but there's a line there, but it's believable in its premise. Absolutely. Yeah, no, that's, that's the best storytellers can take something and just push it a little bit further enough you know, and take it into the realm of fiction, but it still seems believable. And in Jurassic Park, I mean, if they told me tomorrow they cloned a T-Rex, I, you know, I would believe it. I say that all the time every time that movie pops on. It's the possibility, right? It's, it exists. Absolutely. And then that's one of the possibilities in my book that I explore is the, you know, collapse of, of most of the trees on the planet due to climate change, which is, you know, a scary idea, but it's also, you know, happening to a smaller degree all over. The book is called Greenwood. The man's name is Michael Christie. He will be in Winnipeg on September 27th and 28th for Thin Air, the Winnipeg International Writers Festival. More information at thinairwinnipeg.ca. Michael, pleasure to meet you, sir. Thank you for joining us. It was a pleasure speaking with you. Thanks so much. For the very first time, the Supreme Court of Canada is going to hear two cases in our city, and it's the first time the country's top court has ever sat outside of Ottawa, period, in 145 years, if I've got that right. So Supreme Court of Canada, Chief Justice uh, Richard Wagner and the court's justices... We'll hear two appeals Wednesday and Thursday while events are planned throughout the city all week long. He's in studio with us now, along with Chief Justice of Manitoba, Richard Chartier. And I'm going to let you just say your name again because I think I, I got it wrong. No, <laughs> no, it's Richard Wagner. You're right, oh, Lorraine. Was close. That I was, was great. I was close. And then I saw you <laughs> nodding over there and I thought, uh-oh, I've already... Uh, you don't want to take off a Supreme Court justice. That's, <laughs> that's, Good my, advice, main, that's my main point. You never know. I mean, I hope to never, ever sit in your court, but I don't know. Yeah, like, this do, you, will go. do you have the power to just throw us in jail? Right now. No, no, no. We're so nice people. Don't, don't worry. Okay. So tell us a bit about this journey here. Like, how many months in the making are we talking to? It's been a few, uh, few months that we prepared that because we have to do it right, and uh, it's not necessarily easy. 
But with the help of uh, our colleagues from the Court of Appeal and the Queen's Bench, uh, Justice Chartier and Joyal, it, 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 it was much easier for us to do it. But we wanted to do it. Uh, for us, it's, uh, it's one way. It's part of our, our, of our initiative to better communicate directly with the, uh, the citizens of this country. And uh, one way is to allow them to know what we do, how we do, and, and why we do it, the work we do. And so uh, people don't go to Ottawa very often to look at uh, the hearings. So uh, we wanted to give the uh, people of Manitoba the chance to uh, come and see us. Once upon a time, I dreamt of being Prime Minister of Canada, and the Prime Minister never came to Winnipeg. And so that dream faded away, and I had the traditional Canadian you know, hockey player, or uh, Canadian Football League player, that sort of, uh, of dream. But I also know that uh, in speaking to athletes over the years, quite often what it does inspire them is that first face-to-face meeting with an athlete that they admire and they go, they're just like me. They're, yeah. a, they're a person just like me. And it sort of sets their mind at ease about the goal that they've set for themselves or it sets them on a different trajectory going, maybe I can do this. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And, and one of our, one of our objectives is, of course, to give information. Uh, if possible, to the uh, citizens of Manitoba, but also to listen to what they have to say. And uh, we start this afternoon by meeting with the uh, high school students. And the nine justices will go in nine different schools, and they will answer or try to answer their questions. And it's important for us. That's the next generation. Those are the people who will have to realize that uh, it's important to have a good judicial system and to appreciate what they have. And I, I believe that we... I think that we have one of the best judicial system in the world. I think that judges are well-trained, uh, well-educated, and people have to know about it. And uh, I always believe that one of the reasons why there is bias and prejudice is because ignorance. So the more information you give to people and the young people to start with, I think a better society will, will be. So we're here in Winnipeg, a first for the Supreme Court of Canada. Uh, Chief Justice of Manitoba, Richard Chartier, how did you, why Winnipeg? How did we land on this list as a first? Have we been naughty or nice? Yeah, no, right. Uh, good, great question, Lauren. Uh, I mean, I, I'm all smiles. I've been smiling uh, for a year. And I remember when the Chief Justice became Chief Justice of Canada uh, a little about two years ago. Uh, my wife and I, we flew down to uh, Ottawa to celebrate and uh, and the chief's wife whispered to my wife, we've got something special in mind for Winnipeg. And in that evening, the chief justice told me the same thing. Nothing more, just cryptic message. We've got something special in mind for Winnipeg. And then a few months later uh, is when uh, we uh, uh, I got a call from the chief justice and he said, how would you like to host uh, the Supreme Court for their first visit. I said, are you kidding me? Um, I, we'd be happy. We'd be delighted. We'd be honored. His only direction to me was Chartier, don't mess it up. <laughs> oh, so I see you feel like we feel when the CEO comes into town sometimes and you're like, do I want to be there that day or not? So Winnipeg, is is there something about Winnipeg that would be the reason why you'd want to do it here, though? Well, there were, we had to decide where to start. And uh, and that's just like uh, Chief Justice Chassie was saying uh, Winnipeg, of course, uh, is in the center of the country. And uh, on the highway, I think you have a post somewhere that says this is the center, mm-hmm. Manitoba. That's one reason. But but there's, there are more reasons than that. I think that you, uh, Manitoba and Winnipeg has a large community of francophones, large community of, of, of indigenous people and Métis people. And 
you know, the last time I came, I noticed on your license plate, it says uh, friendly Manitoba <laughs> and people are friendly here. It's a vibrant society, very diverse. And so for all those reasons, I thought that to start, we should start in Winnipeg. So here we are. And I see that you uh, were quoted as saying, if people don't have faith in the judicial system, that's the end of democracy. That's a, kind of an apocalyptic statement. Uh, why is it the end of democracy? Well, it's the end of democracy because we should not underestimate the importance of the trust that people must have in the judicial system. Because one, if the people don't have the trust, if they don't believe that going to court, they'll have a fair hearing. Not necessarily that they, w they will win, but a fair hearing. That's the beginning of the end because people will settle their, their disputes on the street. So it, it's, part of, and it's part of democracy. And to have a good and strong democracy, you have and you have to make sure that people keep their faith in, uh, in the judicial system. When it comes to the Supreme Court, I think people often have, you mentioned aspirations to be the prime minister, but there's the power is in the courts in the sense of how we frame conversations in our country and where we want to move forward with laws and everything from um, moving wonderfully forward on same-sex marriage or, or moving back on things, right? And the buck stops at the Supreme Court in many ways. That's correct. We, it's a big responsibility, but the court through, throughout the years, you know, uh, was called to issue judgments, to release judgments which have an immense impact on, on the life of every citizen of this country and their friends and their family members. For instance, aid to suicide, for instance, in the Carter decision that we released a few years ago, that has a lot of consequences on, on, on every citizen. Gay marriage, uh, Jordan, the Jordan decision that we released a couple of years ago uh, regarding the, the, the right of any accused to have a a trial in a reasonable delay. You know, all those decisions have an immense impact on the population. So the population should understand how it works and how we came up with those decisions. And we try to find ways to better communicate with people, visiting uh, other cities than otherwise one way. But we, we've, done, uh, we've done other ways also. You know, we have now for the last year a, uh, the cases in brief. Cases in brief is on one page. We summarize a decision of the court, which can be complex sometimes with difficult issues, on one page in accessible language so that everybody can understand what's the impact of that decision on your life and the life of your family. Quickly, is it your court they're using then this week? We're, we've been kicked out of our court. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> well, let's, let's did just, you clean it all up, I'm wondering? We did clean it all up. We well, did, absolutely. Let's we have Lysol wipes here if you need yeah. extra. <laughs> Greg, you've got a question you've been waiting to fire off. Here. Well, it's courtesy of one of our terrific listeners. Nine Supreme Court justices in our community. Did they all travel here together? <laughs> we, know, a, we know about protocols in, in big corporations. Yeah. How did you get that's, here? That's a good question because we're only nine. So I want to keep my players uh, very healthy and all together because we need, uh, we need the nine of us. So... Uh, Common sense uh, told us that uh, it would be preferable to uh, fly on different uh, on different flights, uh, but there's no specific rule uh, regarding our uh, the protocol for that. But uh, so, in theory, you could have come on the same plane. Theory, we could, but uh, some people would have been uh, a bit concerned. Mm. Security follows follows you on this trip. Is that yes. normal? Also, when you're in Ottawa, yes. Mm -hmm. So you go from home to work. Well, for the for chief justice, but uh, we're very lucky in Canada compared to other Supreme Court 
elsewhere very close to us. Uh, we, we don't have the need for extensive security. We have what we need only. Uh, but there's no tradition of excessive security measures. And uh, hopefully and thankfully, that's, I hope that uh, the situation will remain the same because we have a very quiet uh, and calm uh, population in Canada. And uh, I'm very proud of that. You're in Winnipeg to hear two different cases. Part of it today is to have a Q&A session with students. Richard Charche, kids can ask some of the best questions. Have you vetted them? Like, do you know what's going to be asked? Or do they just get to stand up and ask whatever they want? No, we're going live, Lauren. <laughs> we're going live. Uh, and, and when the Chief Justice said uh, he's coming to Winnipeg, and there's two aspects, A, to sit, and second, to do outreach, so that they can listen but hear and get to know feel, touch, and smell what Manitobans are all about. The first group they said, uh, Chief Justice Wagner indicated to me, the first group that the Supreme Court of Canada wanted to meet were the students. And uh, so we're going to be going to nine downtown schools, six English schools, one Aboriginal school, one French immersion school, and one Francais school. And uh, with they'll be matched each one with a Manitoba Court of Appeal justice. And uh, we're going to hear the questions. But no, nope, nothing is nothing is prearranged. Nothing is scripted. And uh, it'll be interesting to see. And I, I'm guessing Greg's question is maybe one that they'll ask. Mm-hmm. When it comes to um, the decisions that are made in courts, one of the things that's been really neat about the televised aspect of Manitoba's courts in terms of showing it to the public is they get to see that judges don't just suddenly say guilty or not guilty without decision. I think that's an important part of the process. We have about 30 seconds and yeah. in, in seeing and hearing what is said. That it's, of course, that's it's part of the process. 70 pages or 200 pages. Exactly. And how our, our, our hearings are televised, whether it be in Ottawa or here, here in, in Winnipeg. So that's, that allows people to look how it is done. And as I mentioned before, I think that's part of the process to make sure that people keep their faith in our system. The Supreme Court of Canada hearing two cases in our city, the first time the country's top court has ever sat outside of Ottawa. Chief Justice of Canada, Richard Wagner, and Chief Justice of Manitoba, Richard Chartier. Gentlemen, pleasure to meet you both. Thanks for coming to see our us pleasure. today. Our pleasure. Thank, Thank you very, very much. much. World Heart Day is coming up on Sunday, September 29th, but we're going to celebrate the second annual World Heart Day celebrations here in Winnipeg on Saturday, September 28th. Jackie Ratz is here, Heart Life Manitoba champion, heart and stroke patient advocate. She joins us, uh, well, for the second consecutive year. Jackie, great to see you again. Great to see you too, and thank you so much for all the support that CJOB and you guys have given me. Well, you know what? It's an important conversation to have. This uh, heart health is a huge issue, and we've discussed women's heart health in particular with you in the past, Jackie, and I know we'll we'll do that again, but but talk about what's going on this uh, coming Saturday, uh, an outstanding venue and some tremendous programming in store for those that care to participate. We have a great uh, day planned for everybody to come on out for a walk um, over at the Dakota Community Centre Fieldhouse. We're asking people to pre-register for either a 2-kilometre, 5-kilometre or 8-kilometre walk. And the nice thing is is that you're walking on an indoor track. It's a wonderful facility. Um, We have a number of different initiatives planned this year as well. We have a talk that's being sponsored by Heart and Stroke Canada. Um, And they're going to be talking about uh, heart-healthy eating uh, along with the Canadian Food Guide. And then we're also having a hands-only uh, 
CPR uh, information session being sponsored by Surviving Link. What does that mean, hands-only? Hands-only means that we actually can do uh, CPR for people that are in distress to be able to help to save their life. So you don't have to necessarily do mouth-to-mouth in order to be able to help people get through a cardiac uh, cardiac event of some nature. So it's great information, and both adults and children are able to perform it. So Surviving Link is the company that's going to come out and be able to provide some of that information. And they'll have information about getting actually fully CPR trained as well. Then we're also having a number of uh, initiatives for the kids. So we have uh, some introduction to yoga uh, for the children, story time, so kids can actually learn about how their heart functions and the the, the, uh, the powerful um, heart and how much it can pump, how the blood runs through the body. So that should be great. And then we have an obstacle course for them as well, because as we know, walking around or running around a track will not be enough to burn off some of the energy that these kids have. Um, this event is all in, um, in all, all in support of being able to figure out how can we prevent cardiovascular v- disease from happening to us. Premature cardiovascular disease kills 17.5 million people every year, and 80% of it can be prevented. So things like stopping smoking, of course, we know is, is one of the top ones, getting 150 minutes of exercise per week is another important element, keeping our stress level down, and of course, eating proper diet makes a big difference. Simple things like having an extra glass of water a day is a wonderful way to make a promise to yourself. And then there's also the, the you know, something like going for a walk with the dog, possibly even making a movie night with your kids and making sure you put in a comedy so that there's laughter in the house can be a great stress release. So, all easy things. Laughter, easy things. water, maybe a 10-minute walk. I don't think I'm hitting any of these. Well, the laughter I hit today. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's about it. The water is still full in my cup. I haven't gone farther than the steps for, for my walk today. But, you know, often great volunteers like yourself and advocates, it's born out of a personal journey. Tell us where you are. Uh, it was four years ago you were diagnosed with heart failure? Correct. Failure? Yes. I have had um, heart failure for four years, um, and that stems from me having uh, chemo-induced cardiomyopathy. I had chemo when I was 24 due to a tumor that was in my chest. Um, so I'm, I'm concerned, cons- considered stable currently, and I'm on a regimen of medications, and I try to do some of those preventative things um, that now I'm, I'm helping to try to promote. Um, and then I'm hoping that um, I can keep that heart transplant at bay for a much longer period of time by doing those things. So this year's theme is to be a heart hero. So what does that entail? So being a heart hero refers to the theme from the World Heart Federation who sets out for the World Heart Day events. And what it is is that we're asking everyone when they come to be prepared to be able to sort of make one commitment, and that is to either drink more water, do more exercise, whatever it is that resonates with you. And uh, we actually will be giving out Warehouse One sponsored T-shirts to those people who are able to walk five or eight kilometers um, at our event. You know, I, I often wonder, as you know, I host, co-hosted the health report for almost a decade for St. Boniface Hospital Foundation, and we interviewed so many heart health issue survivors, cardiac researchers, cardiac doctors, and I think m- part of my concern is that the care has gotten so darn good that we ignore the fact that so much of our heart health is in our own hands. And prevention is such a huge issue, but we have that safety net that's so effective, like 90 plus percent effective. I think it gives us a false sense of security and a false sense maybe of a lack of responsibility that we have for 
our own health. Am I being too harsh on everyone there? I think we are so blessed to have such an amazing cardiac um, team here in Manitoba and, and truly across the country. I think there is some amazing uh, cardiac uh, support that we have, and you're absolutely right. When we don't feel like we're becoming ill, it's a lot more difficult for us to um, realize that there might be something going on. And part of it as well is, is that the stresses of the of our world now and, and of our daily lives are so busy. And it's a, we have to be able to try to find ways of incorporating these little moments so that we can actually be taking care of our health, especially our heart health. Our hearts are linked to every other area of our bodies, correct? Like it's linked to our lungs, to our brain, and to our even to our digestive systems. So by taking care of our heart, we're actually protecting our entire body. You've uh, taken steps, you said, in your own life to try to prevent what might be a transplant down the road. What's been the hardest part for you in, you know, the hardest step to take? Was it just the first extra drink of water or the first 20 minute walk or is it is it daily that that's a, that's a challenge for myself one of the biggest things that i had to learn how to manage was uh, was truly the stress in my world um, and i found that that was one of the things that most people struggle with because they have so many things coming at them whether it's their careers whether it's family obligations whether it's um, even for, even friend obligations to be honest and to be able to say you know what no i have to do some self care here in this area it was probably the hardest step because i'm a i'm a giver i like to be able to satisfy and make everyone happy. And so that was uh, learning to say no was one of the biggest challenges that I had. And um, certainly in a busy family, I think it, it would be, I honestly believe that it probably would be diet that would be one of the more, tele- more difficult ones. Your, your stress one is such a big one because you're, you have a diagnosis, you're in heart failure. That's stressful enough to think about, Correct. let alone the, the challenges of daily life. And I think, you know, my mom texts me almost weekly to say, are you, have you figured out how you're going to take some time for yourself? Like, where's your time? How are you carving that out? And we're all really, really bad at that. Mm-hmm. Mama knows best. Oh. Yeah. Part of the challenge, though, too, we know that that women in our conversation about women's heart health, we know that that women ignore their own health as a sacrifice almost in taking care of those around them. And so women need to pay particular attention to some of the signals, some of the signs, because uh, even the medical community is not as well versed in the differences between men's heart issues and women's heart issues. While we understand that we have a really great cardiology system here in the in the province and such, there are some differences between men and women. Men have a set of symptoms that they present within the hospital in regards to having a heart attack or a cardiac event. Women themselves have a have a set of symptoms that they can present with in um, in the hospital. And it's really important that the medical system starts to recognize that these symptoms can be um, similar, but there can be nuances to both that need to be recognized. So when a woman presents in the hospital the information to be able to get, that women can present to the doctor can help them get diagnosis much sooner. Heart and Stroke did a, a report a couple of years ago on women and heart disease, and it clearly demonstrated the, in, in, the differences that exist between men and women. Um, and we we're making progress now in terms of getting education and training out into the cardiac teams, and that's a really important step to it. Awareness is uh, key. Awareness is key. Key in in all this. Jackie, thanks for what you're doing. And I always like to point out the fact that you're not only dealing with with, uh, living with heart failure, but you're also a cancer survivor. And I think you just kind of touched on that. Glossed over that, yeah. Yeah, you you. really glossed over that (laughs) at the beginning there. So uh, you're uh, triply brave in my my books. And uh, you also, I I don't know if this is for public consumption, but you just suffered a huge loss in your family. So condolences to you and and your family. And and thanks for, for doing what you're doing, Jackie. 
Thank you so much. And for more information, please go to www.worldheartdaywinnipeg.com or please give me a call. I'm happy to talk, 204-509-9600. Jackie Ratz, Heart Life Manitoba champion, heart and stroke patient advocate, joining us to talk about the second annual World Heart Day, which is coming up on Sunday. But in Winnipeg, the events are happening on Saturday. Hey, thanks for listening to The Start Podcast. We are available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Subscribe now and never miss an episode. And if you like what you hear, rate the show, tell us what you think, and hey, even tell a friend about the podcast. Be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Greg is at GMACWPG, that's G-M-A-C-K-W-P-G. I am at Brett McGarry, B-R-E-T-T-M-E-G-A-R-R-Y. And Loren on Twitter is at McNab on Global and on Instagram at McNab on C-J-O-B. Talk soon.